This is Improvised Radio Theatre with Dice. With me, Michael Keel. And me, Roger Bell West. Spring has sprung um, in South Buckinghamshire and we've moved out into Roger's vast jungle of a garden with more magpies than you have ever seen in your life circling overhead. I hope that, that's probably an omen for something. Maybe they're hoping I'm dead. <sighs> Are you? don't think so. Well, that's good. Magpies aren't carrion eaters. What are we going to talk about today? Oh, well, we're going to talk about the weird and the strange and and the unknown, as in Unknown Armies. We have a review. And about a genre of SF that hasn't really seen a lot of love in role-playing terms. So why, why not, and uh, what can we do about this? Onwards. Before any of that, um, one of our brief mentions of uh, the Bundle of Holding, which very kindly lets us know what the things that they are about to do and publish from the great and varied past of role-playing games. And we sometimes mention them when we think they're a bit um, interesting. Also when they tell us far enough in advance that the offer is still going by the time the episode comes out. Timing is very important. What are they telling us about this time? Well, this time it's another pass at Fading Suns, which they have had a while back, yeah. but they there was an error of some sort and they had the first edition rulebook and now it's the second. So for people to whom that sort of thing matters. Well, um, if you're a completist, you're a completist. In any case, Fading Suns, decaying gothic space opera. You know, one, of, one of the noble houses is actually called Decados. <laughs> and uh, and uh, and the and the big giveaway, the 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 spoiler in the title is that the uh, sons of this uh, the stars in this particular universe are going out for no readily apparent reason. Also, a spoiler: you are never going to get to find out why. Ah, well, uh, yeah. If, if 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 closure is important to you, this may be a problem. But yeah, it, it's Warhammer 40k without the unconscious homoeroticism or war. I thought it was more June, but it, more there's, miserable. There's a lot of June in there. Yeah, if, if you want to escape from mundane reality with, with a society that is self-destructing and everybody can see it self-destructing, but nobody actually wants to stop it, so totally unlike reality, Yeah. then the, this is a great thing. Um, the rules, well, they're rules, really. I mean, I, I'd saw them off and stick on GURPS, but then I would. Uh, it does have multiple science magic systems, one of which is actually called Hubris. What is it called, Hubris, Roger? Because uh, it, it's basically what happens when, when one of the good sorts of magic goes wrong and you start doing it for, for um, fun. Right, okay. No fun magic. Fun magic is bad. <laughs> what you actually do is a bit trickier. In the core book, at least, it's go to planets and have adventures, probably under the patronage of some noble or other who might be a player character. Uh, later supplements do expand all this, and there are later supplements in, in the bundle. So it's thing, things like you know espionage or merchants or no, nobles playing power games or whatever. Yeah, I think I think nobles playing power games would seem to be the default activity for the setting. Oh, ultimately, whatever PCs are up to is probably caused by that. The question is, what are they actually doing? And that that is a bit of a weak point. Yeah, th- this is it's a few years old. This one, um, yeah. and I, I think it's it's somewhat old school in the sense that it doesn't really have this standard story to be told it's a space setting all sorts of things are crumbling at a poke your job is to go and poke them yeah I can see why it might be fun I I can also see the lack of focus to it yeah I think it would need a certain amount of work from the GM but even without that there are definitely things that can be stolen here hmm. I'm, I'm never actually that fond well I'm not that fond of, of settings without hope it must be said but um, mm. uh, and, and doom and decadence. Well, I like decadence up to a point, but you know, only on a only, only on a personal scale. Yeah, if everybody's being decadent, what's the you know, where's the if fun? If nobody's being upright and upstanding, where, where's your fun in being decadent? I ask you. Oh, no, not Lark's tongues again. Oh dear, yeah, there is only so much debauchery a, a, a body can stand. To be perfectly frank. Experiment has not found this limit, but experiment continues. <laughs> You're a young man, Roger. You're younger than I am. In any case, available as a bundle of holding for another few days. Yeah. Might be worth a look. Mm-hmm. 
some episodes ago we talked about the modern horror game Unknown Armies, and it now has a third edition. Whee! It's in hard copy, I can see it from here. No, no, that's the second edition. I couldn't bring the first edition on the book, on the bus, it is that heavy. Ooh, there's it three big books in a, uh, in a wraparound uh, mag- magnetic um, uh, GM screen. <laughs> Um, which I, I I meant to bring to you uh, to, to to show off to you, Roger, but I, I just came all over all weak and helpless. Um, yeah, I kickstarted this one in memory of the first two editions, which I have um, and which I collected quite a lot. Um, back in the nineteen nineties, and the first two editions were very much games of the of the nineties. Um, I was influenced into a new style of GMing by three games of which this was the third the first two were Over the Edge with its um, very flexible, very simple and adaptable game system uh, which is now released as Warp you can get it for free on the Atlas Games uh, website and it's weird and wonderful and throw anything in conspiratorial um, setting a la Marge, which was great fun and, and encouraged me to learn again that you can improvise and you can pull things out of your ass at a moment's notice, which improved the game. Um, the other, the second was Everway, with its um, very light and uh, very mystical um, and very GM dependent resolution, character generation and resolution system. Made in a far off land where artists could be exploited much more cheaply than they can now. Really? Art life has got gotten better for artists. Why have I not heard of this? <laughs> I think it's more that the, the reasonably competent ones are just doing something else rather than producing art on the cheap. Yeah, well, I knew there was a, a problem. And the third was Unknown Armies. Um, Over the Edge was 1992, Everway was 95, and Unknown Armies was 1998. And it was, in a way, um, a climax to that particular, well I'm not that sure if it's a movement, but that particular phase in game development. It had the same freeform capabilities as Over the Edge. The skills um, and traits were often largely uh, player or GM defined. I was always disappointed that um, the system wasn't genericized, but perhaps that wasn't what uh, Greg Stolze was interested in doing. It's a game to reflect stories like the later novels of Tim Powers, their gamblers and ghosts are in in America. Where, uh, uh, it's the world of the Illuminatus trilogy or the Invisibles on the high end. Uh, Grant Morrison's very weird comic book. I, in some ways, so it, there's lots of strange stuff that's been going on for ages, and you've just found out about it. Yeah, um, there is lots of strange stuff, and you are one of the people. Who has fallen into this world and has to make their way through it somehow, despite being the innocent. Yeah, you don't stay innocent very long. Mm. In some ways, it's a precursor to fiasco because there are lots of people here with the mystical equivalent of a case full of thousand-dollar bills, some high explosives, and and a supply of cocaine. Mm. And the people have, as it says on fiasco, a great ambition and very poor impulse control. They are at, they have great power. They can cheat the cosmos, but they, the very act of acquiring power tends to bend you out of shape. And if they dodge fast enough, the great responsibility might land on somebody else. Now that is generally the uh, generally the idea. It's not my fault. Look over there, a squirrel. Ken Height, I see from reading Wikipedia, in his uh, review of it in uh, I think a hundred best, some sort of game, said this. Unknown Armies tells us that the only reality is what human beings choose to make of it, and that frightens us with the thought that only insane people care enough to really change it. But for all that, it remains a game of alchemical optimism at its heart. From madmen and loners on the margins of society, a better world can come, if they want enough to fight all the other madmen and loners to the death and risk losing the rest of themselves. That is, now, I think you have to be American to be able to uh, get the alchemical optimism vibe. Perhaps for that reason, I, I, because I was too British to grab hold of the vibe and too middle class to appreciate the street level setting, I ran less of Unknown Armies than I did of the other two games I mentioned. But I collected it somewhat obsessively. It's not as bad as my Ars Magica 
habit and it did influence the way I ran things. Now, talking for a moment about the earlier editions, they were more in-game system, they were more detailed and complex than either OTE or Everway. It, it does look a lot more like a conventional role-playing game of that yeah, sort of period. It does. The, well, it has, it has stats for a start. Body, mind, <laughs> speed. Um, I forget what the other one is. Soul. Um, which which were there to act as default values and limiters to uh, to the skills and traits which could go up theoretically forever if you were good enough. Now, I never actually saw anybody hit, well, then I didn't run, run very long campaigns, hit that those limits. And by and large, I it, it, they, those sat uneasily. On top of the on top mm. of the rest of the game system, and it's gone in the new edition. So essentially, what you're dealing with is normal people plus weirdness, rather than extremely competent people plus weirdness. <sighs> yeah, I think that's true. The normal people plus weirdness. Normal people were a lot more uh, likely to continue being fairly normal, I think, in second edition than in third. I'll come to that in a minute, moment. But there are limits on skills, but. There were a lot of um, NPC characters who were somehow blown out those limits by dedicating themselves to one stat or one skill and not paying attention to the things they don't really do well. Yeah, I, th- I think it's it's a flavour thing more than anything else, perhaps. It's, it's not, I am extremely strong, it's, I have this particular sort of magic that lets me do things as though I were extremely strong. Yeah, the ma- magicians cheat. Um, there were rules about combat which were fairly detailed in the second edition and they were quite a bit more crunchy than over the edge and they were intended to make violence seem both inevitable and highly undesirable hmm. there's a lovely section in uh, in second edi- in second edition first edition too I think at the start of the chapter on combat which is a list of the reasons why you really shouldn't be doing this thing you're in a room with another guy and one knife. Why do you want... Uh, you, you've made the mistake of getting here, but look, there are other ways out of this. Mm. Um, on one nice point, which is continued in the uh, current uh, version, player characters don't get to know what their hit points currently are. Mm-hmm. You're just told, mm, yeah, you're bleeding. Yeah, you've got a nasty gash right across the top of your scalp and there's blood running into your eyes. You've got a dull ache in your ribs where you got poked, but... You don't actually get to know you're you're down to three quarters of your hit points until you know you start falling over. Oh, it doesn't hurt much. You can keep going. You're fine. Yeah. The most innovative part of the system was the madness meters. Um, insanity has a long history of in role playing games that goes back to Call of. Is there anything before Call of Cthulhu? Not systematically. I know that you you could be driven mad by certain things in. Uh, I think Deities and Demigods original version. Mm. But uh, well, anyway, Call of Cthulhu was was the big one. It is the big one. Um, but it had one stat for mental stability, um, sanity points. It didn't matter whether it was your wife leaving you, fighting a war, or seeing great Cthulhu. Well, from a point of view of degree, it matters, but not not a. It, it's a quantitative, not a qualitative distinction. Yeah, unknown armies complicated things. It gave each character an array of five ratings: violence, the unnatural helplessness, isolation, and for the all-important possibility of betraying your very uh, inner being self. Um, When you faced up to something terrible, there were two possibilities. You either became hardened to that level of um, terrible... You hardened a step. Um, And if you got beyond... and And the things you were hardened up to um, no longer affected you. I mean, that was allowed... In uh, Call of Cthulhu, but it was sort of hand waved and not really. It was one specific thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm no longer scared of deep ones. Yeah, I, 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 puff, I, I sneer at your your deep your deep ones, but Shoggoths still give me the willies, which mm. is a perfectly reasonable point of view. Um, so you hardened, or you cracked, depending on a mind skill test. You had a. A rating of one to ten in being hardened, and only of one to five in being in failing. So 
and when you failed completely in any one of the st uh, uh, one of the gauges, you were permanently, permanently ish, I think, bonkers. Mm. In some in so, some regard, you had lost lost the ability uh, to to stand up to the world. You were you were very badly cracked. But becoming hardened was also a bad thing, because as you harden, you become less and less sympathetic. Also, other people can tell that you are you have seen terrible things. And after a certain point, you become effectively a sociopath. You lose um, your obsession. Every character is obsessed in Unknown Armies, and it's a, a useful mechanical bonus. The thing you're obsessed about, um, you're more likely to succeed with. Um, so, uh, yeah. Now, one of the problems I have with the Madness meters, and I do still do with the rewrite, is that some of the stuff on the higher stretches of their scale of awfulness seem very hard to pull off. Um, on the isolation scale, for instance, it's, it's, e it's easy to arrange step one, isolation. The character just needs to spend a day without seeing anybody they knew. I am probably hardened to that degree. But I do that. I don't, yeah, I don't think, I don't, yeah, maybe we are, maybe we are atypical here, Roger. We, we should sign up for the Mars mission. Obviously. Um, but step eight is, be deeply, painfully and violently betrayed by somebody you love. And I can't see any way to do that without railroading. And step ten... Uh, well, a lot, these of, are, a lot of player characters don't really love anybody except themselves that much in the first place. Yeah, that's, the, the new version is going to, a little way to ensuring that they do. Right. So you will have somebody they can who can screw they can screw over and can be screwed over by them. And step ten gives us an example of step ten loneliness stress spending spending a month in a sensory deprivation tank. Now I can see ways to do that, but it's a little tricky. And you can't have Great Cthulhu rise every time when you need a, an unnatural unnatural ten stress. Well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe if you. The, you know, the, the horror is happening, and the, the only way to stop it taking over the world is, is for me not to be able to perceive it. Therefore, <laughs> I will shut myself up in the sensory deprivation tank until it goes away. It almost works. Yeah, the, the self-scale is even harder to work. Step 7 involves discovering you inadvertently committed cannibalism. Step 9 involves... That's not a betrayal of self. All right, Roger, remind me not to come to your next barbecue. <laughs> No, I mean, that, that is some, somebody who's screwed you over. That is somebody has caused an offence against you. That is not you have done something wrong. You know, I agree with that. I'm not sure what that says about our own personal uh, um, ethical scales. It's a magnificent tool, anyway, for role-playing opportunities, and the fault may, uh, may lie in me not pushing to run a longer campaign. Anyway, the background for Unknown Armies was a lot more detailed and anchored than Over the Edge, and that's perhaps another reason I didn't do more with it. I would never, for instance, introduce the Priest Kings of Gore into Unknown uh, Armies game the way I did on Alamarja. <laughs> My players assumed the giant golden bug driving the truck was a William Burroughs reference rather than John <laughs> Norman, but they don't know my low tastes. Now, the very Americanness of it, of it stopped me getting into it the, the heart of the setting is on the long, dry roads in the middle of America and the, the motels and the dusty, flea-bitten sideshows um, showing the world's most amazing this, that, or the other, which look as if they ought to be um, either wonderful or terrible and somehow manage to be both. Tim Powers meets Hunter S. Thompson? Yeah, pretty much. I, I tried using the engine to run a British Weirdness games set in the 1950s, I tried running one of the suggested campaigns of the core book, American TV crew investigating stories of the weird. Neither really flew with my players. Um, one of the problems may have been, because I was starting out with, um, with just plain folks who have discovered the strangeness, um, the two main routes to occult power in the game are becoming an adept or becoming an avatar and really you ought to start out with with that if you're going to have that level of power. I don't honestly see an, an e e easy way to do to create either of them or well, maybe the avatars. Adepts are people, are the mages 
They are people who are obsessed and crazy enough about a certain thing. They can use it to gather magical power and to bend reality. This is the thing that has always stuck with me from previous exposure to the game. It's, it's, it's a very nice way of making sure your mages are a bit strange without saying magic makes you strange. No, the things you do to get the magic make you strange. And the, and the things you do with it also make, make you strange. Um, there are examples. The dip, Dipsomancer goes out and gets drunk and then goes out and uses the uh, the power that the alcohol gives him to cheat code reality. And of course the decisions you make to uh, to cast spells when you are drunk are not entirely necessarily um, the wisest uh, the wisest uses of them you may ever come to. The two powers that immediately come to mind are travelling long distances very quickly and winning fights possibly yeah. with inanimate objects. Yeah, the dipsomancer can cause every single knife in a restaurant to fly towards his enemies. Of course, he may forget that he's in the flight path as well, but hey, small details. Um, the mechanomancers could create uh, almost living clockwork beings at the cost of binding their own memories into them, which um, and basically they, they were balanced to, to ensure you had to pay for what you got out of magic the cost was always slightly too much. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you got really lucky, it was it's it's a it's a game it's a magic is a pursuit for gamblers in, in I think in, in this setting. The avatars in the game in the game setting there are a number of human beings, a maximum of three hundred and thirty three at any one time. The becoming the three hundred and thirty third resets the universe, it seems. Mm-hmm. Who have number of human beings who have risen to become archetypes of a particular path of human destiny, wisdom, whatever. And the avatars are the people who follow those paths in, in imitation of them. The true, you do what the true king did um, by protecting his people. If you're following the path of the mother, you protect the children. The maskless man wanders the path of the ronin and the necessary servant is nothing without a master to serve. Mm-hmm. The savage turns his back on civilization, and the fool on rational thought. Mm. Well, careful rational thought. Short rational thought uh, works. I, th- I think you're allowed to say, ooh, there's a pie over there, I think I want it. I don't think you have to completely abandon rationality. <sighs> yes, Roger, let me explain appetite to you sometime. <laughs> okay. Um, the more you imitate the archetype without breaking the taboos of that path, the more power you have. And if you become the very bestest in the whole world, you not only get a special secret power that you get to choose, but you also uh, have the chance to become the archetype and rise to the invisible clergy and replace the person who used to be there. What happens to them? Are they they trying to get it uh, back or do they go further on? No, they get kicked out into a thing called the House of Renunciation, which I'll come back to in a moment. Alright, both powerful ideas, but on the other hand, unlike Over the Edge, where I could say, what exactly would you like to be, think of anything? All this background does mean players feel they have to make choices out of those backgrounds. At least the players I got. Yeah, it's it's a standard problem to some extent. I've just been looking at a um, number of stories where, yeah, vo- volume one of a multi-volume story said, yeah, here is this great big mystery. Yeah. And it was just left there. And then 20 years later, somebody, possibly the same person, came along the road, volume two, and said, oh, well, that mystery, that, that, this is how it all works. Yeah. And uh, the second volume needs to be very, very much better written than the first to make that work at all. It because does. setting up a mystery and letting people speculate about it is, more, is intrinsically more interesting than explaining it. Except it does have to be superbly done, but it can be superbly done, I think. And I can't think of a single damn example at this moment. <laughs> Don't snigger, Roger. But, ah, uh, yeah, that, I still collected the game, as I said, and I think the uh, one of the adventures in the anthology called One Shots, which is one of the first things they published, is the finest one-off suitable for convention scenario I've ever, ever written, in my opinion. It's called Jailbreak. It's about a bunch of convicts who, uh, who have t- on the run, and the people they've taken hostage and what they find out about themselves over the, pro- the process of a short period of time. 
Anyway, I didn't get the, the word about the new edition in time to kickstart it, but I did, in the aftermath of the kickstart, order a copy. And I wish I'd ordered the option with the PDF as well, because it would be so much more convenient, but mm. my fault. What they've done with it is interesting, but I'm not sure it's entirely for the good. The system could have been generalised into a less specific gaming tool, the way, way OT was, OTE was, as I said. But instead they have chosen to make it for finely tuned to the specific setting, and this has good points and it has bad. That does seem to be the general modern approach. It does. Um, out go the, the stats, which we mentioned before. Uh, body, speed, mind and st- and sold. And I don't really regret that. It's not really. They didn't sit well with the uh, with the with the, the general feeling of it. He's Greg Storzy has instead chosen to move the uh, madness meters, which are now called shock gauges, I think, to the centre of the system. He's given them a connection, each of them a connection to a pair of abilities, so that as you increase your hardened notches on a particular meter, one falls and another increases. As your violence meter hardens, your ability to connect to other people drops, or your ability to hurt them with a struggle um, ability increases. Mm. Right, don't worry, there's an out here. I can see you go, mm, but there's an out here. As you, uh, the more you betray yourself, the less easily you access knowledge, but the better you can lie to people. There's no way to get one of a pair trait above 60 or below 20. Now, as the get-out from that, the player-defined skills of 1st and 2nd edition become traits called identities. They cover all the things that aren't covered by the 10 core identities, and a few things that are. You can replace a role on, on one of the 10 um, core skills with an, with an identity if it's appropriate. What sort of things are these core skills? They're things like basic in, uh, in interaction with people, an ability to do skin, do things. Dodging is it is is in there. So very very broad areas. Of very broad areas of, of competence, but not getting terribly high. And identities can ra- rise and can go up as high as a hundred percent. I think I don't think they ever go above a hundred. You get a chance to increase an identity every time you fail to roll it successfully, um, except for avatar ad- ad- identities which go up every time you succeed. Hmm. I'm not quite sure why. It feels significant, but but I'm not quite sure why. Um, They can do things like give you access to magic, um, be an avatar skill, allow you to practice medicine. I'm a doctor. Of course I can can, can do first aid. Um, I've known doctors who think that, yes. (laughs) Your character will have an obsession and your identity, and one of your identities ties in with that. You get a pool of 120 percentile points to put into identities, and you have to diversify. You can't go, uh, you can't start with more than 90 percent in an identity. Mm-hmm. Um, having three, I think, is neither impossible nor unreasonable. I think it's actually the sweet point. And as I was mentioning earlier, the new edition also introduces relationships as a started out part of the character. They can; these can be with other player characters, mm. and well, that solves the whole betrayal problem. That, well, yeah, it gives it, it starts to give you um, reasons and to and not to betray them. And you also start out by starting out before you even start with characters. You start without starting out the cabal, the conspiracy that they are part of, and what they want to do. Now, okay, so you're essentially setting up the campaign framework as part of character generation. Yep. Um, if you can't, uh, you're supposed to do it as a joint thing between the uh, GM and the players, which is fair enough. You've got a group of people who have who have um, had their own particular horrible thing in the woodshed that revealed the um, uh, the secret universe to them, and they've joined together for some purpose. Um, some suggestions in the new group. We're going to in, in the, some suggestions from the new edition include we're going to invent our new own new school of magic. Oddly enough, that's merely a local aim, uh, rather than a global one. You would have thought, but no. And up, uh, up global aims uh, would include um, range up to ensuring the next president of the U.S. is a Buddhist, 
You should have started doing this several years ago. Does he have to know that he is? I, I think the intent is that the, the American people have to know he is and say, yeah, that's cool. Ah, uh, okay. I, yeah, I, I would have started some years back, but never mind. Or setting up a nuke in a population centre. Yeah, uh, that's very mystical. I Much easier than the other one. Well, I would have thought. And one of the re- it's the mechanics of getting the group's aim realised that I'm having my second slight problem with third edition. It's rated as a simple percentage and in a very abstract way. The GM and the group are expected to plan out the stepping stones, um, some means of getting to that end. Um, and each adventure is a stepping stone, and each time you do you do it, the percent you succeed, the per- uh, the percentage increases slightly. Um, okay, I can see the percentage more as a way of keeping score than anything else, but yeah, I do like the idea that not only do you have a big goal you're working towards, but presumably this is something you're going to achieve in campaign time. Yeah, um, the idea is that once you reach a hundred percent, if you do that. Well, you can short-circuit everything. The the game can take you to where you suddenly achieve it out of the blue, and it happens. In which case, you take your previous percentage and apply it towards the next thing that you want to do. Hmm. Um, you reach 100%, you, you succeed off-stage. Some of the th- things fall together. This is a game about mystic connections and coincidences, so that seems reasonable. And at any stage, the party can say, sod this for a game of soldiers, set up a snap event which might lead to it, and roll the dice. Mm. If they fail, they halve their percentage. They've exposed themselves to the to the rest, what they're up to, to the rest of the occult underground. And they, uh, and, uh, they have to go back. And that feels... All right, you like it. It feels to me abstract. I don't like... I don't like the that whole this adds to the number, this halves the number thing. Yeah. I like the idea that you've got a progress meter. Oh yeah. The thing in is, the sense of okay, we we are, we are now feeling we're making progress because this number is ticking up, as opposed to oh, think think of it, practically any TV series which has a season arc. Yeah. Sometimes this is done right, but very often it's just, oh, well, here is our adventure of the week, and in five minutes at the beginning or end, we will say, here, here, here we are ticking along the arc, but it doesn't actually make any difference. And it isn't, it isn't integrated with the, the adventure of the week in any way whatsoever. Yeah, but also the actual arc segments could often be shuffled around a bit. Yeah, I, I suspect they often are. Um, the, uh, the set, what, what I'm saying is I like about this is not the mechanic as a whole, it's the sense of progress. Yeah, true. Well, if only because 60 is more than 50. Is it? Oh. The, uh, the, thing, the, thing, well, I, the thing I'm 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 kicking against is the fact that it's a single solitary uh, meter. Um, the, uh, Greg Stolz's other design, which I like... Um, I'm sorry, Greg, I'm sorry. There must be more than one, but the, the one I'm thinking of at the moment is the company rules from Rain, where you have this thing, which is the thing you're working to build up, this abstract entity, this group, um, and it has various statistics and defini- def- definitional bits. And you can see, like your ca- as with your character, you can see that it's progressing or it's regressing, it's getting stronger or weaker, and there's yeah. more detail to it, whereas this, I suppose inevitably... Has to um, has to be abstracted because it has to serve so many different ends. Um, all right, maybe I'm being ungracious here. <laughs> there have been a few changes to the setting. Um, the, the original game was pre pre millennial. It was it was soaked in the madness of leading up to the year two thousand. Or was it two thousand and one? One of those, you know. Birth of Jesus, which was probably a, probably in nineteen uh, anniversary was probably in nineteen ninety eight, but hey, or two thousand and four, depending. Depending, depending on which way they got it wrong at the start. I'm not ex- now. Whilst that's still with us, I'm not expecting it to end until oh, the, the the about uh, about twenty thirty five, which should be the last plausible anniversary of the crucifixion. Um, it's faded off a bit. I think what we have more at the moment is generalised crazy. <sighs> yeah. Well, the 
the in the setting they have had they it was always there are only a few places left in the invisible clergy the 333 was one of the basic premises and now they've sort of reset it and they sort of haven't hmm. they've said in the background that something happened on the 3rd of march 2003 and some of the big players are now no longer in the position they were there's a thing called the Room of, of Renunciation, which I mentioned before, which was one of the bits of the original setting I never really got, mm. which was basically a means to take any character, NPC or otherwise, and do 180 degrees on their obsessions and personality mm. and rewrite them totally. I never quite got what it was there for. But they've used that to redefine at least two and possibly more of the of the core characters from core NPC characters from the original setting and it may be that time has been rewritten a little <laughs> at that point and so whilst there's a lot of stuff hanging on from the past you've got the sort of promise of a new beginning um, but it's not that much of a wonderful new beginning there's so that's the world is it that's, well, yes it's the world I'll, I'll agree um, what is the defining thing about the world I mean is, is it the magic and the, the weirdness, is that the... No, it's that human beings are responsible. They don't like it. I mean, do you? But they are responsible for everything that happens. It's our weirdness, our obsessions that remake the world. Okay. And the people who know this are more powerful, though they pay a horrible price. In the reimagined in the relaunched edition, the, uh, one of the odd things is the number of cool elements in the old edition, which are said to be still there, but are reduced to one paragraph in the third book. Um, you've got a player's book, character generation, most of the system, a GM's book, um, some background and details of, more details of magic schools and cabals and things that are happening. And the third book, which is pure background with very little rules in it. Mm -hmm. And some cool stuff, like the aforementioned dipsomancers, um, are reduced to one paragraph of, of description in the third book. I suspect it's because they're either short of space, they're, of course they're short of space, and it really wouldn't be terribly difficult to rejig the, uh, the dipsomancer details from second edition into third. It's it hasn't changed that much. If hang on, the second edition is a book you can comfortably carry. Third isn't. What, you, what, if they're short of space, what has all that space gone on? Uh, now you mention it, I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> that, it, it, excuse me, that's a, it's about twice as thick uh, uh, as thick as that is. All right, uh, perhaps uh, outraged persons from Atlas Games can. Uh, send as a defence of this point. Um, yeah, all right. I'm glad I got this game. I've got a feeling it's one of those I'm going to have to run by the internet, if at all. It requires a special sort of creativity, which I'm not sure my... I've got, it, I've got one or two people in each of my main groups who would spark off and say, yeah, yeah, we could do this, we could do that, we could do the other. And so we'd say, well, I don't get it. That's sad, I suppose. I think mm. you do need, I, I, as with Ask Magica, as with, um, I think you do need enthusiasts to to run this. Not yeah, enthusiasm I, I, I met, for the game system, so much as for the weirdness. Yeah, I've met games like this, and when when I'm playing them, I generally need to be either happy and alert and first thing in the morning, or have a lot of time to think about it. Hmm. Which would you prefer? I'm not going to start playing games first thing in the morning. <laughs> no, it's probably bad for your health. Oh, dear. Uh, so, on the whole, a game about... Ah, what have I written here? It's about people who want to play games... For people who want to play games that are edgy and unpleasant, and the antithesis of heroic, or being all about moral judgment and playing dubious prices for less than wonderful miracles. Well, that's good. That's, most, that's the ending of my review for Alarms and Excursions. Hmm. Yeah, alright. I think that's what I stick with. Yes, alright, I'm probably going to run it, but I'm being my normal fussy self and saying it's not perfect. Goodness. 
I know, it's unprecedented on this podcast. I'm interested in playing, anyway. Let us move on. Valued listener Brett Evans is a Vyoski about science fiction settings that don't get a lot of love in game terms, or indeed in fiction these days. And one in particular could be called mid-century hard science fiction. Ah. Uh, so, first of all, let's define it, because it's arbitrarily from the start of the Second World War, so the end of the Pulp Era, to uh, the start of the Mariner programme. Yeah, I think it really comes into its strength after uh, the Second World War. There was a... Yeah. But, but during the Second World War is when, when you get your engineer-slash-writers mm, doing, the, doing their engineering. That's also true. <clears throat> as well as some certain amount of writing. And s- some examples, an awful lot of Heinlein. Yeah. Arthur Clarke, certainly a fall of Moondust. Mm. Arguably rendezvous with Rama, though there is some weird alien supertech. Yeah, that becomes well. very narrativist towards the end. Uh, some, some Asimov, the Wendell Earth stories. Yeah. Some of the Lucky Star, though, again, it gets a bit more rubbery. But basically, based on what was known and theorised and more or less expected at the time about planets and indeed about propulsion systems. Just about everything you could find in analogue um, for that uh, astounding stroke analogue for that period. I have a, an extensive yep. collection which I must get sorted one these days. It's so, a, a slide rules. Slide rules, atomic rockets. Um, Computers swamp, swamp, that filled rooms. Swampy Venus. Yeah. There's really no excuse for that even then. There was some excuse. Right. Didn't have any look below the clouds. Till, till, no, that, that's specifically why I'm putting the Mariner program as the end of this, because then, then you have orbiters and farewell, fantastic Venus. It was the name of the collection, radar mapping, and so on. Yeah, um, but it's specifically not the pulpy Flash Gordon. Work we can go wherever we like. Yeah, but it, but it does seem to have got conflated with the pulp stuff to some extent. In in that it's where, where people think of it at all. So what happened? Where did it go? Did it turn into transhuman space? It, well, it was a very conservative and, um, uh, in both senses, set of assumptions. It was it was the science fiction in which uh, we went out into into the galaxy and and explained democracy to people. Yeah, I do. I do see a certain echo of "We won the war; we can do anything." Yeah, although it, it was um, an SF of of confidence of optimism and looking forward to the to the future and it wrecked itself on the 1960s culturally speaking as well as scientifically as well as scientific well it wrecked itself on the vietnam war it wrecked itself on on the counterculture at home and it and it wrecked itself on the new wave in sf it's SF writers started doing other things. Some of the same SF writers started doing other things. And science and government started doing things that weren't allowed for. It was very rational. Um, and some of the... I would even say rationalist. Yeah, well, some of the rationalist impulse turned towards things that turned toxic in the modern age, towards libertarianism and and reactionary conservatism and the subtext there there were very nice books there were very nice stories but some of the subtext turned out to turned out to be less pleasant when other people said yes but um I'm making what, too what much about the people who aren't white yeah for example right. i don't know if i'm making too too much of this but i think that's what i, I think that's that's one strand An, another strand looked at as as a retro genre hmm. If you're going to say, well, we know differently now, but we're going to have Venus like this, yeah. you're going fuzzy. At this point, it's not hard science anymore, so so you might as well go fuzzy with whiz-bangs. And... Oh, yeah, you might have, as well have the fun fuzzy as, as the dull fuzzy. But the, the, there is a, a, the problem here in gaming terms uh, it looks like Traveller. looks like early edition Traveller. looks like Traveller with all those bloody huge... Um, the computers and 
and all those puny uh, pop guns which keep going off and which really shouldn't still be there. Yeah, if, if Traveller were, were linked to this, were restricted to the solar system, hmm. or at least n- nearby. Yeah, well, uh, the feel of the feeler of the th- of the Third Imperium there in the in the rewrites of Traveller as it gets um, as it, it gets more towards the mon- modern age, they have to come up with things like why are we not seeing nanotech? Why are we not seeing artificial intelligences? Why are we not seeing all the cool things which we think ought to be possible but hadn't been thought of in the fifties? But hadn't been thought of in the fifties. And they come up with some very fuzzy justifications. Emperor says no. Yeah, why the Emperor say no? Why would be this a bad thing? Why, if this is a bad thing, are there no traces of the desperate nano wars which destroyed whole solar systems or the rampaging um, computer intelligences, unless you want to go with, uh, with, with the, the new era and eventually wreck the, uh, the entire thing with the virus, or whatever it was called. Boo, boo, dull, hiss. Why was there no evidence of this? I mean, at least in the background of Dune, you had the Butlerian Jihad, which was never clearly or adequately explained. But it was Sadly, it was explained in a later sequel by another hand. And that wasn't a good idea? It was a terrible idea. All right, I'll take your word for it. Used as the... Yeah, if, if you just have the phrase, that's cool. Yeah. You work out what it's for... It is clearly a message from the author to the reader. We're not going to have robots in this story, and there there is a reason in the world why we're not. Don't ask too many questions. Mm. And you know, since the book is not about why we don't have robots, that's fine. When you go to, when you go explaining it, and no, it just doesn't work. Yeah. Even if it were done by a better writer than the one it was done by. But but I, but yeah. the, the, the problem with maintaining it is, I mean, I don't know, slide rules. Are the are the are the archetypical instance here? There's that famous analog co- cover with the space pirate climbing on board with a slide rule between his teeth. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody, uh, nobody except Asimov, I think. Oh, Asimov had the had the pocket calculator become a thing. He's pointed one of his stories quite quite early on, but the authors of that period assumed that. The tech they knew would be familiar to future generations. It will get, it will get better and faster, but it will essentially work the same way. Yeah. A, a computer is some, something that you send your request into and get a response back later. I, I, my, I first wrote a computer uh, program when I was at school, and it, it used punch cards, mm-hmm. which tells you how old I am, children. The... Uh, the, the the lack of anticipating change, but, but but every science fiction does this, and the, sure. the modern science, transhumanist looking decidedly weird science fiction is going to look ridiculous in fifty years time. I would say transhuman space, one of the first published transhuman RPGs, already looks quite strange. Not because the history has gone differently, particularly, but simply because some of the, some of the things that are posited as future tech are here or very nearly here. Some of them are looking distinctly impossible. Yeah. If if one is going to run a game in a setting like this, what 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 are some defining characteristics of it? Because because even if we don't do it, it might be worth stealing those from somewhere else. One one of the things I see is you've got atomic rockets, yeah, but you've got rather than just say, oh, well, everybody can have a spaceship. You say no, th- these are actual nuclear reactors. There's going to be a lot of regulation involved. Most spaceships are owned by the government hmm. in some form. Yeah, you have to, maybe you can do it the way that Heinlein did it with the the, the Rolling Roads, and and have uh, you have all this this wonderful civilian tech, but you've put the uh, you have put the military in charge of it. So the captain uh, might be an employee of the space line, but the chief engineer is navy. Yep. Also, they're expensive. So again, either government run or ferociously penny pinching, which I think yeah. some of Heinlein's merchants are. Yeah. Or both, of course. Takes a while to get to places. You you need to think ahead, plot plot your trajectories. If 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 you're going from A to B, you probably don't actually have the delta V reserve to divert en route. Mm-hmm. Um, th- this this changes the shape of adventures because, for example, the yeah, classic um, SF plot: you you're going along in space and you get a distress call. Yeah, unless that distress call is pretty much directly on your route, you ain't going to answer it. Yeah, why? On the flip side of that, if you open up the scope a bit, you get some set up a rendezvous with Rama, where it's implied there are lots of ships playing across the solar system, but there is only one 
with both the position and the delta v reserves to intercept this alien weirdness. Hmm. So that, that that can cut both ways. You don't have a lot of space habitats, which I think is interesting, because this is obviously prior to O'Neill. Yeah, perhaps. who is mid seventies. When was two thousand and one? The that great late sixties, early seventies. Yeah, the the great wheel in the sky. The the space stations are a thing, especially with Clark. The, yeah, they're generally quite small, though. They're you know we we put this station here because we want to switch between the atmosphere ship and the long range ship or something mm. like that. Though e- even then, that they're expensive enough that you might well have a space liner carrying its own shuttles rather than just docking with the space station where it's going. I, I, I've got a feeling that space stations were bigger in the imagination in the 50s and 60s. Certainly Heinlein puts... I think they're working stations. They're not, they're not places where people live, for the most part. Mm. No, true. Um, I, space habitats, yes. All right, space habitats are a step beyond. I'm not quite sure where you see the first of those. John Varley? Something like that? Mm. Um, you know, there, there are space habitats... But then I'm thinking of the the great alien tech in, um, oh, what's it called? Wizard and that that trilogy. Gaia. Gaia, yeah. Yeah, Uh, so you don't get a lot of ship-to-ship combat either, partly because they're so expensive. Um, Um, Partly because they're so far apart and hard to find. Yeah. Hard to find is another thing. Yeah, which which really doesn't stand up to elementary thermodynamic calculations, but it, it, it is, I agree, a genre trope that you can hide a spaceship. Well, yeah, you you know where they should be. Uh, the, the, uh, the only one, ah, the only space station, uh, Venus Equilateral, um, is the, I think that's what it was called, Giorgio Smith? Yes, and th- th- those definitely have people living on board for a long posting. And it, it, it's, and, more, it's more like a submarine than a city, but... Uh, well, and, there, and there's another trope there, which is the scientists are in charge. Yep. That's, I mean, the scientists own, own the the thing, and 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 when the uh, the efficiency expert from from Earth turns up, he nearly wrecks it. Yeah, one one of the things I thought of when look, looking through a list of candidate titles is that most problems aren't resolved by fighting. Yeah. Uh, yet there is some mill SF in this in this setting, but mostly it's here is an engineering problem. And when it's not that, it's here is a people problem that we solve by talking to people. Even or possibly by convincing them of things by, by practical demonstration, but generally not by hitting them. Well, even the dorsi, which are um, which are very much big, uh, people, what people think of here when they think of military SF in this period, even the dorsi, the stories are mostly about philosophy and cleverness of solution, rather yeah. than how big your guns are. One of the things you get in this is that because the potential for violence is extremely lopsided. You know, if there is a fight, side A is undoubtedly going to win. Mm. Side B then has to do something clever. The story is not about the fight. The story is about avoiding the fight. Yeah. And that, that, that I think, is worth studying. I mean, obviously, because of its wargaming roots and other reasons, role-playing does tend to emphasise combat a lot, and I, I think this would be a thing worth doing if one were going to resurrect a setting like this. I... Yeah, but the the, the bits of... Yeah, the bits of, of, of role gaming which which echo this do tend to be gun obsessed and yeah. gun detail obsessed. I, I'm trying to think of examples that are specifically in this genre. Um, the only one that really comes to mind is GURPS Teradyne. Yeah, I can't remember much. I have read it. I can't remember much about it. It wasn't a very flavorful setting. I think that was part of its problem. Hmm. Um, I th- that I think that had more recent planetary science, but. Um, it, that that could be retrofitted onto it. It, it certainly got the big expensive ships. It was. Hang on, Teradyne was a corporation, wasn't it? Yes. And and it was edging towards the 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 corporate space trope, which is slightly yeah. later, but I think emerges from this. Yeah, the, Teradyne isn't a perfect fit. I'm just thinking it, it might be a good starting point. I, I really can't think of offhand of any anything that's really done this much in role play. Hmm. I think, yeah, I, the scientist being in charge is is one trope. The the businessman being in charge is another, and leads to other things um, in later SF. Um, I think for the um, for the design of player character groups that that a merchant mer- mercantile setting 
is perhaps more flavourful and fun and easier to access for those of us with a lacking technical education. Hmm. Can that happen without turning it into space accountants? Because one of the key pressures here is you have to make every last margin on every last deal that you can. Yeah. You are out there, you have no sure sure thing. Hmm. Yeah. It's a problem. Actually, I think the answer is that your background is you are normally well off um, and you normally have lots of money coming in, but something new comes up and it threatens your cash flow and you have to deal with it. The good people deal with it by uh, by taking it on and improving it and the bad people deal with it by suppressing it. Yeah. So you you might say, right, well, you, you, you've had six months of, per- of perfectly normal trading, you've, you've built up a bit of a buffer, but we, we, we raise the curtain when you, when you hear that um, your cargo has just become obsolete. Yeah. You've, we raise the curtain when we, we discover that uh, the price of an Optanium has just dropped on the Venusian markets. So, yeah. Okay. Do people it, want to go back to this? I, th- I think there are things here that, that, that have been dropped. I've, it might well be worth stealing from them more than trying to build a full-on setting around mm. them. What, do, what appeals to you about this? Um, well... In general, I, th- I think it's true of a lot of the games I run that the violence is one-sided, and, and if you, if you start a fight, you, you can you know who's going to win it. But I like the emphasis on that. I like I like the emphasis on cleverness. Hmm. I like the emphasis on um, I don't want to say cold equations, but but that that set that concept, the hmm. idea that you can be as clever as you like, but after a certain point, physics physics is just going to say no, not budging now. Hmm. The trouble is, Some, most people won't understand, those, the, the, uh, won't understand those equations. Oh, and, I, I think that and we'll want to, our players will want to kick against it. Yeah, I think, I think it, it would have to be made um, implicit to the characters that they, they contribute to this in some way. I don't know how one would do the mechanics for that, but some, some way of saying, letting the player say, no, this is impossible. Hmm. We need to think of a way around it, not through it. Yeah. And get and get some sort of points for that, perhaps. If 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 I'm doing for going going for a specifically genre appropriate game, yeah. But yeah, also I think it's worth considering the ships. Ships are expensive and tightly regulated, and mm. they're mostly a way of the PCs used to get to where the adventure happens, rather than something they do stuff on board a lot. I think one of the main reasons why ships would be tightly regulated. Is precisely well. It's it's not the quilled equations. It's a, a short story which I think I mentioned before about a spaceship crashing into New York, which is another good reason to have your way station up in the uh, up in the in orbit. Um, you do not want spacecraft landing anywhere um, that it's liable to do major da- damage, mm-hmm. and you want your your planet to planet spacecraft never ever to land with their huge. Um, atomic thrusters, no way, Jose. It's also a reason why you want um, why you want uh, beanstalks. Yeah, though from a Delta V point of view, it actually works a lot better if if, if you have a low orbit station than a high one, because mm-hmm. you get free orbital plane changes. But anyway, <laughs> let us leave aside the tech. You can, you can write you can write a monograph about this. Yeah, I, 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 I've always I've always felt that the idea that there would be a lot of um, people in their own spacecraft zooming around is is asking for disaster. Yeah, I, th- I think the only time in this you do get private spacecraft is, for example, after a major war hmm. or after a major generational change in the tech. Yeah. So you've got lots of obsolete craft kicking around. Yeah, true. But the uh, and, and, and then of course they're second hand, which means things go wrong. So. That's a good trick. Yeah. Have we squeezed the juice out of this? I think so. I think there's stuff there, but I, I, I'm prepared to say, yeah, I can see why this has not been the focus of, of a standalone RPG. Well, all right. Uh, you have our commercial recommendation, you of the great and good. <laughs> well, given that things that do appeal to me are usually commercial failures. That's also good advice. <laughs>
This has been Improvised Radio Theatre with Dice. With me, Michael Keel. And me, Roger Bell West. Please send us your questions and suggestions about settings that you think are appealing but blatantly uncommercial, um, either via a message at the website or email to podcast at tekeli.ly. And don't tell us about your obsessions. We don't need to know. (laughs) We assume you're obsessed. You're gamers. And we'll see you again in another month.